I'm Christopher Leiden, reporting on Pakistan, a slant. Just to get my attention, one worried big shot got right up close and said, this is the country that can kill the world. My project here is to get your attention and sort out the threat, the joke, the little bit of pride, maybe a plea for help in that line about a scary and absorbing place. This is open source from the Watson Institute at Brown University. An American conversation with global attitude, we call it. Most of this is Pakistani conversation. Some of it about the American input into the turmoil in this part of the world. For starters, yes, I was nervous arriving in Karachi at 5.30 on a morning in July 2011 on a plane from Dubai. And then a young Pakistani who was landing with me said, why would you come to this place? To listen, I said. But you know, no one is safe here, he said. Political killers rampage in the streets of Karachi just to show off. Some people come to Pakistan looking for the home address of jihad. This is where Osama bin Laden turned up and got killed back in May 2011. Pakistan is the one and only nuclear power in the Islamic world. It's the only way in or out of the war in Afghanistan, we often hear. I went to Pakistan wanting to stare down the root fear in America of the Muslim world. But I went even more to taste the Pakistani experience of life. This country was born in my lifetime, after World War II. The surgery was not neat. Pakistan was hacked, really, out of what had been British India to make a homeland for Indian Muslims, they said. Coming to Pakistan, I wanted to know how the agony of its birth colors its sense of itself, its slant even today on its bigger, richer sibling rival, India. I wanted to engage writers, artists, historians, and musicians on the inner life of Pakistan. But even among the imaginative class of Pakistanis, the first thing I confronted was us in the play of American power in Pakistan back to the 1950s and today in the fate of refugees in Karachi from 30 years of American warfare in Afghanistan. The big newspaper headline the day I landed in Pakistan was Karachi continues to bleed and burn. The first week I was there, 100 people died in target killings and political turf wars in a city that is now 20 million people. In a class-divided country, a lot of people barely notice. One well-off Pakistani, an arms dealer, as it turned out, said to me, if 100 people were killed in the Bronx over a weekend, would anybody say New York is bleeding and burning? I said, yes, somebody might. The novelist Muhammad Hanif was the first man I got to ask about the American thumbprint on Pakistan. I've admired Hanif especially for A Case of Exploding Mangoes. It's a catch-22 satire on the U.S. military alliance in the Reagan era with Pakistan's jihadist general Zia-ul-Haq. Muhammad Hanif has been a working writer in Karachi for 25 years now. I ask him, should we see the suffering of Karachi as part of the war story? I think uh, it's a fruit of uh, sort of more than one wars because you have to realize that the first major influx of the population into the city happened as a result of the partition. And uh, you also have to remember that nobody actually planned for it. When they kind of drew those lines on the map, nobody, even the greatest of the leaders, Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Gandhi and Nehru and Mountbatten, nobody actually thought that these people would have to leave their homes from India and they will end up in a place called Karachi. Nobody even heard there was a place called Karachi. So that was the first time that there was a war. Uh, and uh, as a result, you know, sort of Karachi received uh, refugees uh, from uh, India. And then when the Afghan war started, the Afghan refugees started to come in. Some of them settled into refugee camps, but as would generally happen in these cases, that they obviously would travel where, where the work was, where they could find employment. And that place was Karachi. Uh, so as a result... Uh, you have such a kind of, you know, explosive uh, mix of uh, people and problems. And since there was, the civil government was very weak here. So what happened as a result was the city is actually run by, by a very informal private sector. Uh, if you watch the news, people would call them gangsters, people would call them the underworld, people would call them the mafia. But basically what, we, what they provide is 
things uh, which uh, actually the local government would do otherwise. But here it's run by, you know, sort of private sector. And since the competition is so intense, so that private sector needs protection. So they have arms. And some of them will sit out like the huge, huge period of government sitting in a jail because that's the safest place for them. Because if they come out, they'll be, they'll be uh, you know, killed. I had been hearing about Patan children from the northwest frontier dragging magnets over the dirt streets of Karachi to pick up metallic trash to sell. I've seen and uh, hung out with some of those kids that you're talking about. And mostly it's not as sophisticated as that. Some of them might have magnets and some of them might kind of collect metal. But most of them collect uh, trash. There are thousands of them. According to one estimate, there are like, you know, sort of at least 60,000 just in Karachi. What they do is going around, going to rubbish dumps, picking up anything which uh, can be recycled, and then they uh, sell it. And most people would think that, oh, they're either beggars or they are uh, drug addicts. Uh, But I've talked to most of them. They're not drug addicts and they're not beggars. They'll never ask you for anything, even when you stop and talk to them. Uh, and they're definitely not uh, uh, drug addicts. I've talked to them, you know, sort of uh, in some detail. They are basically workers. That's the only work that they can uh, find in this city because of, you know, sort of overpopulation. So from morning till evening, uh, they go around, you know, sort of collecting this rubbish and selling them. And I used to see that mostly they were either teenagers or kids. In the last couple of years, increasingly, it's, uh, it's grown men, some kind of, you know, elderly uh, uh, men. Some are sort of uh, a bit enterprising. They've uh, uh, got bicycles now and they've got like more capacity to collect and carry uh, more, uh, more garbage. And there are people who've set up warehouses where they can go and sell uh, this garbage. So, so there are people kind of, you know, who improvise on a daily basis to, you know, sort of uh, make, a, make a living in the city. Mohammed Hanif is reminding me that these mega slum cities of our time, 20 million people and more in places like Lagos and Mexico City and Karachi, don't grow organically, but out of human events, out of war and economics. Long before I went to Pakistan, I started probing the American grooves in its history. Pakistanis are stunned at how little we know about the CIA war in Pakistan through the 1980s to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan. It came to be known as Charlie Wilson's War for the rogue warrior played by Tom Hanks in the movie. It was 1979 when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. This was Pervez Hoodboy on Open Source a year ago. He's an MIT nuclear physicist who came home to teach in Islamabad. The United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia got together and they created this international jihad. And so you had the CIA bring in the strongest and the most ideologically charged of fighters from across the globe. You had the CIA actually placing advertisements in magazines like Soldier of Fortune. And so it was billions and billions of dollars that were pumped into the creation of the Mujahideen. They were celebrated by Ronald Reagan. You had guys like Charlie Wilson, who even have written books. And it was the University of Nebraska, which was given $50 million by USAID to create these books, which had absolutely vile propaganda against uh, the Soviets, that they were infidels. Then you had the CIA distributing millions of Qurans in madrasas in Pakistan and Afghanistan, etc., etc. So then it was this monster which eventually grew so big that it was out of, completely out of control. It ate up its masters, the United States and now Pakistan. I had had the chance to ask the literary star Danielle Muinadine how much of the present-day quagmire could be credited to the U.S., He's a mango farmer in Pakistan who writes short stories that are celebrated also in London, New York, and Mumbai. This is this all flows from the from the Afghan war, from the first Afghan war against the Soviets. The Americans created this army, and once the Soviets had been had been beaten, they sort of brushed their hands and said, "Thanks for the job, boys. We're out of here." And uh, they had created this monster. And this monster. And what's funny, what's hilarious, is that even at the time, many of these some of the leaders of the, to whom the Americans were pouring cash, like Hekmatyar, even at the time, 
Hekmatyar was saying, we have a checklist and the Soviets are number one on the checklist, but you guys are also on the checklist. You're number two. And of course, Hekmatyar and his allies are the ones who are now are now fighting against America. Daniel Muinadine's stories collected in Other Rooms, Other Wonders are all set in Pakistan. He has a law degree from Yale and he could live anywhere in the world, but he prefers to live in Pakistan. I wondered why. There are many aspects of Pakistan that you know, draw me and in fact draw me more than my attraction to any other place. Um, certainly one aspect of Pakistan that I love is the landscape, uh, the sense of color and vim and vigor and excitement. The place is crackling in a way. I mean, uh, people talk about New York as being full of energy, but you haven't seen what full of energy is until you walk through the bazaar in Lahore and feel just this incredible sort of thriving, multiplying life. Also, there's a sense that sort of the place is in trouble a little bit, and and therefore one wants to be there, just as, you know, if your friend is in the hospital, you might be drawn to go and sit with them and see them and check on them. So I think there's some of that too. And then, of course, there's the love of the place of my childhood and, you know, of my family. Um, and and the storytelling. I mean, people are storytellers in Pakistan. And the stories that, you know, people will tell you about this and that and the other. A man came to me the other day, the other day and was explaining to me about all the different kinds of snakes. And he said there's one snake that, that stands on its tail and bounces long. And there's another snake that, if he bites you, if you rush off and drink water, then the snake will die. But if the snake rushes off and gets to drink water before you, then you will die. So it's sort of a race to the water. And there's another snake that runs along the grass in the morning, licking the dew. Uh, so just these sorts of uh, little cultural artifacts I find lovely. You know, so I, have, I remember I was just in... I was in walking on my farm late one night and hearing from far away somebody plowing a field and he was playing, they, they fit these very loud stereos on their car and their tractors and hearing from miles away Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan being played at incredibly high volume by some guy who was plowing his fields at night because it's cooler than plowing it during the day and I found that very moving. That was the writer Daniel Moynardine. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lightman, and I'll be back in a moment with more Pakistan Aslant. Christopher Leiden reporting Pakistan Aslant in the summer of 2011 on Open Source. The name of my game in places like Pakistan is Parachute Radio. Land on the ground and start asking people to take me to your talkers. Haris Gazdar is the sort of person I'm always hoping to meet. He's an independent economist who thinks a lot about what the United States has been doing in his country and why over the long term. Why are we in Pakistan, really? In Haris Gazdar's view, plausible deniability 
is the giveaway phrase describing a covert, almost back-alley bond with Pakistan. Effective, not affectionate, an illicit affair, not a marriage, a loose arrangement with guns for hire, including the Pakistan army and its friends in the Taliban, and the Haqqani gang network that runs the tribal wilderness of Pakistan, roughly the way the mafia runs parts of Sicily. In Pakistan, when the U.S. saw the chance to run the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the 1980s, all that local firepower was on call, at a price. So like the Americans, uh, everyone actually basically invests in uh, rogue forces. Everybody does. All major powers do. The Americans do it a lot more. They have it to a fine art. It's a doctrine called plausible deniability. So it undermines, of course, democracy at home. It also undermines legality in, in international relations. But it's a very effective tool for promotion of foreign policy interests. You create lots of proxies, and you never allow things to escalate to a point where there's a direct face-off between the major powers. Now, the Americans, I think, my, my view is that they developed it because they were awed by the success of the communist movement, where communist parties across the world quite often coordinated foreign policy with the Soviet Union, sometimes with China. The CIA's answer to that was, you know, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the Contras in Nicaragua, and, you know, all kinds of people all over the place. Pakistan, Haris Gazdar is saying, becomes a war contractor, drawing on its own regional chain of subcontractors, like the jihadis who've been making trouble for India in Kashmir. And so a network gets formed. The United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia came together to construct this whole chain of plausible deniability. So when we call them rogue element, then we um, give the impression that somehow these people are not instruments of policy. When something is rogue, it means that it's acting on its own. Right? So let's just uh, work with what we know. What we know is that there is a whole chain of plausible deniability. You know, this old Napoleonic model of regimented armies is replaced here in the late Cold War by this model of plausible deniability that will confront these uh, Napoleonic armies and sometimes to very strong effect. And what happens to plausible deniability, I ask, when U.S. Navy SEALs swoop in and kill the arch enemy? Osama bin Laden, in Pakistan, under the Pakistan army's nose. This is what they're saying, that, look, I mean, we're going to puncture the plausibility of your deniability. There was a time when it helped them, now it's hurting them. So for a long time, they gave the Pakistani military an opportunity to do course correction. Now they're not doing it for whatever reason. They're still giving them an opportunity to do course correction, but nevertheless, doing a bit of puncturing as well. So this is what they have to do. It's like instruments in an orchestra. There are lots of people. You know, every, somebody's got a trumpet and somebody's got a violin and somebody's got a bass. You know, they've got different things and they're all making noise. And then somebody emerges and says, you know, I'm the conductor and tuck, tuck, you know, and the music starts. So there's a conductor and there's somebody who's paying for the music. So that someone is directing all of these different instruments to some political purpose. Of course, when that whole thing is going, even then, you know, you have virtuoso performances by individuals, yes? So you have kind of these, you know, subcontractors, you know, who say, okay, I think I'm going to paint it like that. And, you know, you know, in the end, maybe the client likes that. It's a bit artistic. So I think what happened in around 1998 is that uh, one of the elements in this proto-orchestra decided to make a grab for the conductor's baton. And I think that was Al-Qaeda. Consider this. Harris Gazdar is talking about an American empire run as a pickup game with gangsters or a pickup band with gangsters. As he's talking, what pops into my mind unbidden was the dark side of Camelot. That is the undeniable record that President Kennedy was the son of a rich bootlegger who never forgot his mob friends from Prohibition and used some of them for JFK's advantage. Bobby Kennedy fought the mob, but he also called on the mob to try and snuff out Fidel Castro in Cuba. The mob boss of Chicago, Sam Giancana, actually sent a girlfriend, not a box of cigars, a girlfriend, Judy Campbell Exner, 
as a gift to the Kennedy White House, delivered by Frank Sinatra. So plausible deniability, as Haris Gazdar is using the phrase about policy with Pakistan, is familiar, at least by analogy. I run into other American presences coming around a corner in Pakistan. Dr. Geet Chanani, for example, popped up in Karachi, a lively young transnational American saint. She was born in India long after partition, raised in New York City, trained as an MD in the Caribbean. Her people were Sindhis from the Indus River Valley, what's now Pakistan. Sindhi was her first language because her grandmother taught her, we're Sindhis first, then citizens of the world. Dr. Geet came to Karachi for the first time a year ago to explore family roots when the Indus floodwaters hit. She's been treating families, mainly mothers and babies, in the flood zone ever since. I didn't know that I would be getting involved. It was more of a kismet, if you will, kind of situation. You know, it's like that saying, well, you picked sin, then you're saving these people. And I'm like, no, uh, it picked me, and they're saving me. That's what it feels like. And um, the, one of the dominant problems of Sindh is, and I believe this is why their problems are so, uh, aren't voiced enough, is because they don't, they have a language barrier, a very huge language barrier. Within in Pakistan even? Yes, within Pakistan even, because they refuse to speak anything other than Sindhi. So for example, Karachi, speaking, Karachi people are Urdu speaking. They speak dominantly Urdu. So my friend is Urdu speaking, although she lives in a province of, she lives in the province of Sindh, she's not a Sindhi speaking person. So she goes into Sindh and she's talking to this woman, this woman speaking to her in Sindhi, she understands her completely, but she starts to respond to her in Urdu. The woman is looking at her and she's like, hmm. And then she turns, she looks at me and says to me in our language in Sindhi, I have no idea what the hell this woman is saying. And I'm looking at her and I, I couldn't help but smile. And so my friend looks at me and she says, what the hell are you doing, Bop, you know? Speak to the woman and tell her what I'm trying to say. And for me, this is, I'm like completely out of my element at this point. Hello, I'm an American. Yes, I speak Cindy, but I don't know what I'm doing here, you know? And so I'm like, hmm, okay. So then I started talking to this woman. That was the first experience I had. And um, I was like, wow, immediately, instantly, I basically replaced somebody that's Pakistani, born and raised in an instant just because of the language. And that has been the case ever since. What about as an American, as a New Yorker? You sound so New York. I am very New York. My identity about New York, but my identity as an American is very much a part of me and I think is the ground for the work that I do. The, the fundamental belief that all men are created equal. It's there and, and I believe in it completely, 100%. The equality that we have in America is unsurpassed anywhere. Men and women, religious, tolerance, you know, human rights, everything we have in America is just amazing. And the fact that we can, and it's such a huge melting pot with so many different people from so many different places coming in and not feeling like they're not at home. Just in case I missed it, what's the message you're sending home? <laughs> Humanity first. Dr. Geet inspired a lot of comments when I blogged about our conversation. She's a hero on Facebook, too. She is Pakistan's dream of help from America. I went to only one really swanky party in Pakistan in the capital Islamabad, in a Beverly Hills sort of house that had its own hotel-sized bar in a prohibitionist country, Sinatra on tape singing New York, New York. The host introduced himself as the manager of Pakistan's growth strategy. An hour later, I bump into him and say, just for sport, I can feel Pakistan growing under my feet. Are you crazy, he says? This country's going nowhere, and your country isn't helping. He said, get engaged in educating 90 million young people in this country, or don't sleep at night. And then the line that stuck. He said, this is the country that can kill the world. This was Nadim Ulhaq, who told me he grew up, literally, and was launched on the world from the USIA library in Lahore in the 1960s and 70s. No, my point is very simple. Give us the libraries, give us the community space, socialize these kids. Right now, these kids have nowhere to go. They have no information that they can get. They are distant from globalization. Give them a choice. Give them something better than what they can hear here. Here they have only one community center, one mentor. That's the mosque in the Malvi. There's no alternative. Nadeem Ulhaq said to me, keep your Beltway bandits and their aid packages 
The best thing America could send to Pakistan is C-SPAN, National Public Radio, and the old USIA libraries for peanuts. And you're sending Raymond Davis, he said, about the CIA contractor who ran amok in Lahore. You're sending Blackwater? Are you nuts? I grew up in a time when American aid used to come to us. One of my mentors was a USAID advisor. He worked very hard to send me to the University of Chicago, and that's why I'm here. And I'm forever grateful to him. Hey, why can't we send professors to universities as they used to come? Why can't professors come here anymore? Why can't you pay them enough to come here? Why can't, as I said, we give these kids globalization? Because my view is it's globalization and knowledge that is going to... These kids are hungry just like anybody else in the world. They're not different from anybody else in the world. Nadeem Mulhak is right that the official U.S. presence you see in Pakistan, the walled AID guest houses, the bulletproof SUVs, are not endearing. When your best people-to-people program rides around in bulletproof vehicles, the battle is probably lost. It may be time to go home. We shared a ride at one point with an aid worker from the information shop in Washington who said she'd come out to Islamabad to see what our message is. I said, you mean you don't bring the message with you? She said, no, it's hard to know what's going on or to give advice because we don't have Pakistani or American security clearances to go anywhere or see anything. So much of what you see and hear in Pakistan fits into a revenge of the 80s file, what the Cold War left behind in an overgrown military, state-sponsored jihadism in the mosques, strong-arm politics, with assassination as the trump card, But there's a revenge of the 1940s, too, that keeps coming up in conversations with Pakistanis, with Aliyah Amirali, very pointedly. She is a leader in her 20s of the Student Federation in the Punjab, a change agent in what surely feels like a stuck society. Her project, she says, is to rebuild the left movement in Pakistan. It's also to unbuild the heavily bureaucratic and militarized state structure that the British Raj had built up to colonize the place. It's that post-colonial condition of Pakistan, she told me, that's at the root of the problem. We are a post-colonial society. We're neither fully capitalist. We're neither fully feudal. We are a bizarre mix of these two things. And we're very much modern. Um, But modernity is not a monolith, you know. So the way in which modernity has manifested itself in Pakistan is starkly different from the way that it's manifested even in India, let alone Western European countries. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we are very modern. Take the Taliban, for instance. They are, you know, extremely modern. Look at the technology they use and look at how they use very new um, and sophisticated technology to ostensibly go back to an older era, which, uh, by the way, uh, does not exist. That older era was not there. It's, it's, a, it's a typical revivalist movement. And, uh, you know, Pakistan is one of the bizarre cases where the state precedes the nation. Uh, so Pakistan is not a nation, it's a state. So it's a state nation. And the state that was built primarily for administrative purposes by uh, the then uh, colonial administrators... That same, very same state structure was inherited by Pakistan. It has changed since then. It's been uh, indigenized, you could say, and that has created changes in how the state operates and its influence and what it does. But its basic structure in terms of how heavily influential uh, the military bureaucracy sort of um, collusion Mm. uh, that existed right at the time of partition exists to this day. The political process has constantly been either manipulated or just plainly crushed uh, in Pakistan by the military. And Balochistan is the best example of this. All of these targeted killings, these, um, you know, corpses showing up every day of four or five basically young people and political workers. It's it's a very clear um, example of how the Pakistani state has absolutely no tolerance for independent thinking uh, for spontaneous and self-organized politics. If they cannot control it, they will crush it. The fact is that Pakistan is a multinational state. Uh, It was never acknowledged as one. Uh, Urdu became the national language. No other language has uh, been accepted as being um, of the people of Pakistan, even though it was spoken by such a tiny minority of people. 
um, even at its creation. Now, of course, many more people speak it because they have to. It's been thrust down their, their throats. It's the official language. They have to learn it if they want to interact with state institutions. Um, despite uh, the fact that it was basically uh, the Muslim League in Bengal, which was behind the creation of Pakistan and lent most of its support to it, once uh, the state was created, this particular military bureaucracy oligarchy absolutely had no tolerance for any diversity. If it were to become a true federation, and by true federation I mean uh, people uh, and these federating units to be given um, autonomy, um, independence if they wanted, autonomy if they wanted, to get rid of this severe centralization that exists um, today. And I think both geographically, uh, economically, and socially, now there is so much, there's so many linkages between all of these peoples, no matter how much they deny them now. But there's so much integration um, that I actually don't think that if any part of what is constitutes Pakistan today breaks away and becomes independent, uh, it'll be, uh, they'll be able to survive. So there are linkages. There is a strange kind of uh, connectedness that exists between all of these disparate peoples and territories and geographies and cultures. And it's just about letting them flourish. I was struck by Alia Amirali's line that Pakistan was a state before it was a nation. Sounds like a flip on America, which was a nation before it was a state. It was an idea, a magnet for immigrants, a nation of nations before we had our independence or a constitution. For Pakistan, there's another piece of what I think of as the revenge of the 1940s. It's the partition of British India that created Pakistan in 1947. As the Brown University historian Vazira Zamindar told us, partition is the wound that keeps wounding. On the ground, it's a fortified scar through the Punjab, the old breadbasket of northern India, now divided. When we come back, we'll talk about that partition wound that's inside people, too, and families, separated for 60 years now. I'm Christopher Leiden, and I'll be back in a moment with more Pakistan Aslant. I'm Christopher Leiden reporting Pakistan Aslant on Open Source. The most famous story of Pakistan's birth by partition was written by Pakistan's greatest prose artist, Sadat Hassan Manto. Two years ago, I hadn't heard of Manto. Then Salman Rushdie mentioned in a talk at Brown that Manto was his great teacher, a master of pathos and humor and the common touch. I read a lot of Manto now, and I rank him up there with Chekhov and Hemingway. Of many Manto partition stories from the 1940s, the classic is a strange, dark joke, actually, even about the idea of Pakistan. It is titled Toba Tek Singh, 
about a gentle madman in the Lahore Lunatic Asylum. Here's a bit of it. Manto writes, One inmate had got so badly caught up in this India-Pakistan-Pakistan-India rigmarole that one day, while sweeping the floor, he dropped everything, climbed the nearest tree, and installed himself on a branch, from which vantage point he spoke for two hours on the delicate problem of India and Pakistan. The guards asked him to get down. Instead, he went a branch higher, and when threatened with punishment, declared, I wish to live neither in India nor in Pakistan. I wish to live in this tree. In Lahore this summer, Manto's great-grandniece, Aisha Jalal, herself a critical historian of partition, gave me her reading of Toba Tek Singh. Well, I think what he's trying to show is that the madness outside is greater than the madness within the asylum. That's one of his major sort of uh, uh, efforts, and because he cannot understand why India is partitioned. He cannot understand the logic of it. Uh, but I think the, that while the world understands that aspect of Mantra, what they do not understand is the fact that he also then came to accept the fact and reality of partition. It takes a historian of Aisha Jalal's power to crystallize an awkward truth that the agony of Pakistan today is inseparable from the tragedy of Pakistan's birth 64 years ago. Still more bluntly, that Pakistan as we know it is not at all the country that its sainted founder, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, had in mind. Again, Aisha Jalal. Partition effectively destroyed the natural political unity of the subcontinent. I mean, for all the internal divisions, the subcontinent was never in its entire history divided along supposedly religious lines. I mean, the, the frontiers were not, I mean, based on religion. I mean, it has a long history. It has had a lot of uh, uh, uncertainty. But, but, but this, this was a huge, I mean, partition was a major event and process in, in South Asia's history. In the world, let's, let's be Absolutely. real. Absolutely. So, so that, that, that division uh, and, and the subsequent hostilities between Pakistan and India explain in large part what happens to Pakistan. So it's, I mean, you know, you, there is absolutely no way that you can wish away partition as the primary single biggest factor in what ails Pakistan and to a large extent India. In the conversations I'm hearing from this summer of 2011, there's turmoil and confusion around Pakistan's sense of itself, around the idea of Pakistan, more than around the breakdown in relations with the United States. It turns out everybody in Pakistan has a partition story. Most often it's a horror story, experienced or handed down about forced migration, sudden horrific close-up killing, unspeakable loss. To Mahatma Gandhi, the peaceful champion of independence, it was unthinkable that India be divided. But when the Muslim League and the Hindu-dominated Congress party couldn't agree on how to share power in a sovereign union and with the British rushing to leave, suddenly, in August 1947, there were two separate nations. Back at Brown last winter, the Pakistani-born historian Vazira Zamindar shared her study and her experience of the long partition, the aftermath of 1947, the pain that never ended. It stands as one of the deepest post-colonial wounds in the world, a root of endless public miseries, ethnic cleansing, chronic warfare, constructed national and religious hatred. It is also, as Professor Zamindar testifies for herself, a wound within. It is the mother of identity crises that never seem to go away. To describe partition as a wound, I think it's a wound that's been deeply felt within people. Um, it's a it's a mm. severing of a part of themselves, which is why the wound has not healed. Um, I think for many people in uh, parts of North India, as well as certainly Pakistan and Bangladesh, there were political boundaries that were drawn, uh, which cut right through their hearts, their homes, uh, their kin networks, their pilgrim networks, their religious networks. Um, I would go so far as to argue that in 1947, when that political decision was made, it was still unclear that these, how these two entities called India and Pakistan would um, inscribe themselves as two nation states in this landscape. 
um, I think it is the the following decade that's quite decisive, though the following decades. And one could go so far as to say that it is still an ongoing process mm. of creating this distinction, uh, the need to constantly articulate this distinction uh, through hostility, through enmity, through making the border between these two states almost impossible for citizens of the region to cross. I don't want to say almost impossible because people are crossing it all the time and getting arrested. Um, but but I mean there is a there is a line on the ground that. Um, that disappears very quickly uh, when people cross it. There's a line on the ground which disappears very quickly when people cross it. And that's, I think, a reality for the region. On an everyday basis, people are much more accommodating of difference. Uh, We readily think of conflict being around religious boundaries, but I think those conflicts are produced through political process. Um, and uh, the the kinds of violence that the nation states can carry out as uh, states with huge armies and nuclear weapons now uh, requires us to reinvest in, I think, um, the political imagination, the social imagination, and the cultural imagination of people in the region and on the ground. We've been conditioned, we Americans, starting with the policy slogan, AFPAC, To think of the threat from this part of the world as coming from a cauldron of fundamentalism somewhere between nuclear-armed Islamic Pakistan and the Stone Age back of beyond, as Kipling called, Afghanistan. The more Pakistanis I talked to, the more I wondered why we don't speak of the Indo-Pak origins of such deep anguish among these people. Salman Rashid was perhaps the most memorable on this point, partly because I wasn't expecting the force of his partition story. Salman Rashid is an adventurer and a prolific author on the wonders of Pakistan's terrain. In his backyard garden in Lahore, he had offered me a discovery tour of Pakistan in the spirit of Kipling's masterpiece, Kim, or in the spirit earlier of the Victorian genius and spy, Richard Burton. We would go, he said, from Karachi at the mouth of the Indus River, through Kashmir, and then to K2, the second highest mountain peak in the world. But then, unexpectedly, blessedly, my trip with this soulful Punjabi gentleman broke down in the village near Jalandhar, which is now in India. It is the town where Salman Rashid's family lived and then died in 1947. I'm 59 years old now, my generation, is the last that actually had a first-hand experience of partition. Um, The pain is still there. When I went to Jalandhar, where my family came from in in Indian Punjab in 2008, I went to my grandfather's home in downtown Jalandhar. I, I had a picture, and this was like a film scene, actually, you know, with me carrying this picture and asking where such a building was. And they said, OK, I should get to uh, Bhagat Singh Crossing. So there I was. I got off this cycle rickshaw and I walked down to my grandfather's home. There's a hardware dealer on the ground floor now. So I went. He was a Sikh, a very young Sikh. We started talking, and... Uh, I said, you know, this was my grandfather's home before partition. So he completely warmed up to me suddenly. And he came around the, his counter, embraced me, and ordered tea and cold drinks for me. And we sat down. And after a little while, he got back to his work. And I was sitting there with my hand on the counter. And suddenly he puts his hand on mine. And he says, listen, was your grandfather a doctor? I hadn't told him that. I said, how do you know? He says, I've heard the whole story. I've heard how they were killed. And uh, then he he said, okay. So he took me to several old people. He could not recollect who it was that told him the story. And I was in Jalandhar for four days. And on my last day, I went to my grandfather's village to meet with the other Sikh family who was now living there. And uh, every morning I would be the first one at his store. And he would say, no, I I just cannot bring back to mind the person who told me the story. Meanwhile, we had met 
five or six elderly people who said, no, 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 we don't know of the story. And I began to suspect that Iqbal Singh thought, if I were to meet the man who knew who had killed my grandfather and my grandmother and my aunts and my great-grandfather and so, other people, I would probably go crazy or something. And, and you know, the kind of reputation Muslims have now. <laughs> So I, I had to tell Iqbal Singh, look, you don't have to worry about me. And he says, no, I, I know you by now. And it's not that, but I just cannot recollect. I was in the village when I got a phone call from him. He says, I've found the man and he wants to speak with you. So there I was standing with this 74-year-old man who was telling me, who took me by the hand. And he says, come here, I'll show you how it happened. And then he took me to this house, showed me the room where it had happened. Now, this was going so fast for me, I did not register when the man said, when the man, he would say, you know, he was a stupid man. He shouldn't have done this because he repented after that. I, I, I didn't register that he was speaking about his father. So I had to stop him at one point and say, look, you're only 74. You would have been 13 at the time of partition. How do you know all this? So he you know, sort of angrily he turned on me. He says, you're not listening to me. It's my stupid father who did this, not me. I was a child. And then he told me exactly how it happened. My grandfather was shot through the eye with a shotgun. And the others were all then cut down with swords. My two aunts, young, one was 17, the other was 25 or 26. And my great-grandfather, my grandmother... I wanted to know if someone had been taken out. You know, there are stories of young women having been taken away and sometimes not killed but converted to live as Hindus or Sikhs. And I wouldn't mind if I were today to find out that I have cousins there. And he said, no, the, the, no living body was brought out of this home after they were finished. And then he told me that you know, uh, my grand. I said, "How do you? This is so graphic. How could you know it all as if you had actually seen it?" He said, "My father was very sorry after the event, and until he died in the 1970s, Mahinder Pratap said that his father always spoke about the the event, wept, and said it was a great sin that he had committed, killing such good people." You know, it was. I realized that we have a common inheritance. I had inherited grief. Mahinder Pratab had inherited guilt. My grief didn't go away after that. And I, um, every time I go back to India, I go and see Mahinder Pratab and I hope he lives long because he's my only, he's my only contact. with a past that I never knew. I don't know how this happened, why they... It was made to happen. You know, I now begin to suspect that if this great transfer of populations had not taken place, if this mayhem, if, this, if all this killing had not taken place, and if simply a border had been drawn, and as my grandfather used to say, so Pakistan is coming into being. What does that mean about us having to leave home? This has been home to us always. We're going to stay here. People are going to carry on living in that side and uh, people will be free to come and go. But somewhere, someone, I don't know if it was Nehru or Jinnah or the Brits or who, they did not want that to happen because if the populations had stayed where they were, the line, the dividing line would have disappeared gradually because people would have been coming and going. There would have been no border and the whole thing would have been become meaningless very soon. So they wanted to give it meaning. So someone plotted to begin this great movement of human beings. And uh, the killing began after the Muslims ran riot in, uh, first in Bombay, then in Calcutta. That was the beginning. The Muslims began it by killing people in 1946. We don't want to acknowledge it, but that's the truth. As Mohinder Pratap, when, I, when he finished his story, I asked him, 
why why did this happen why why did it have to happen like this and he looked uh, down for a few seconds and then he said you know it was a time of great madness that's the title of my book that i'm writing about my family it was a time of great madness you know we i think the time to forgive has come and uh, the people are now ready for reconciliation people don't want this border to be the way it is okay let the border remain let there be, be a border check post but why can't we be like europe why can't we travel freely there'll be very little for uh, bishop to 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 uh, do here i met a lot of pakistanis who would concur with the spirit of salman rashid's story that pakistan's many miseries have a point of origin in partition a beginning that suggests how to work on them. In our second hour of Pakistan Aslant, I'm engaging with a variety of creative Pakistanis practicing a sort of alchemy of art on their troubles and finding good work to be done even in what feel like bad times. Mandelkern was the field producer and editor of this Hour of Pakistan Aslant, also of our podcast series, Another Pakistan. Henry Peck is our associate producer and co-editor. All the conversations you just heard and many more are available in extended play on our website, radioopensource.org. Our podcast and broadcast series are co-productions of the Watson Institute at Brown University and the Asia Society. Zarmina Ansari is our producer in Pakistan. Thanks also to Bina Sarwar of the Aman Ki Asha Peace Initiative at the Jung Media Group. Listeners, please feed back your views, your Pakistan, with a comment on our website, where all the conversations continue, radioopensource.org. And thank you for listening and joining in. I'm Christopher Leiden.